There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. So today we're going to talk about the secrets from CEOs, things that they've learned that they think would be applicable to anybody's career. So perhaps maybe you've thought about becoming a CEO, or you've even wondered what it takes to be a great CEO, or you wonder what advice a CEO would give you. Well, my guest has the answer for you, and it's focused on some very dynamic research with CEOs. So we're going to focus first on the behaviors that distinguish CEOs from the rest of us, and then we're going to talk about the things that can catapult your careers and what you can do. My guest today is Alina Botella. Alina is the founder and co-leader of the CEO Genome Project. She's a partner and a leadership advisory firm, GH Smart, and her passion is about helping CEOs who want to have elite performance and social impact. And they come to her because she's been able to accelerate their success and protect them from painful setbacks. Who could not use that advice? Now, for those who don't know, the CEO Genome Project is an extensive research and client practice that provides guidance to CEOs, and it looks at behaviors that lead to the top, the typical setbacks CEOs encounter, and ways to prevent them. Alina is also a member of the McKinsey M&A Integration Team. Council, which is an invitation-only forum for senior executives from major corporations to share best practices. And before joining GH Smart, she was associate partner at McKinsey & Company. The book that we'll be talking about today is called The CEO Next Door, Four Behaviors That Transform Ordinary People into World-Class Leaders. Alina, I can't wait to hear the secrets and welcome to the show. <laughs> Wanda, thank you. All right. So uh, let's go. The title is so great. Four Behaviors That Transform Ordinary People into World-Class Leaders. Tell us a little bit about the research. Who did you interview? What were you hoping to learn? And then I want to know about those results. Absolutely. Well, the book we wrote, The CEO Next Door, is really grounded in GH Smart's um, over 20 years experience advising CEOs. So um, my co-author and I were very fortunate um, beneficiaries of the firm's long-standing experience and IP in the space. Um, and that's really the foundation of the CEO genome. So <clears throat> the research, what's so special about the research? Um, well, so most the CEOs is something, uh, a topic that's been in the press, that's been in the spotlight, and you would think, you know, there's very little that we don't already know, given how much conversation and dialogue there is about CEOs on a daily basis. Um, however, as we looked up close and personal uh, through our client practice, advising boards on selecting CEOs, helping groom and develop the future CEOs, we continued over year, year over year to be shocked by actually how little fact there is for all the lore that surrounds the CEO office and position. Um, there's actually very little fact out in the public domain. And so our firm takes a lot of pride in taking a very analytical and fact-based approach to leadership. And so it was only natural that um, my co-author, Kim Powell, and I um, wanted to make sure that we bring the facts and the data to this 
hot topic of what it takes to be a successful CEO. I happen to agree with you. I think that we have a lot of mythology about what it takes to be a CEO, and much of it is not very kind on the individuals that have become CEOs. You know, things like big size ego and pushing people aside and a whole bunch of stuff. And the popular press has not helped with some of those images. At the same time, I have to say, I've worked with some phenomenally talented, wonderful human beings who've been CEOs. So there's certainly more to learn about this one. And my personal passion for people don't know is I want to breed a new generation of female CEOs because the stats at the current moment are just not that great. But let me stay out of this one. Tell us about what you found in doing this research. What is it that distinguishes the people who go on to be superb leaders? And, and Wanda, if I may piggyback on one of your comments, and, and then I'll come back to your question. Um, so I was um, speaking to, to um, uh, somebody at one of my clients recently. I was there for a bunch of meetings uh, with the CEO. Uh, and uh, this woman, Carla, came up to me and said, you know, thank you so much. I just read your book, The CEO Next Door. Thank you for reminding me that there's nothing I couldn't do. Um, and what was so great about that is that she, you know, she's in her late 20s. She's a wonderfully talented individual. The whole concept of whether she wants to become a CEO is pretty far off in, in her uh, kind of in her field of vision at this point. She wants to be excellent. She wants to be successful like most of us. And so uh, what we get inspired by over and over again when we talk to folks who've read the book, and there are now over 30,000 of them out there, um, is that no matter kind of where you come from, or what your hope and destination and dream is professionally, whether you aim to become a CEO and you're just aspiring to be your best, no matter what you choose to do, um, folks are finding the book really, really helpful. And so that's kind of really what uh, makes us feel really good about um, over 200,000 hours hours of research (laughs) that went into this book. Wow, (laughs) 200,000 hours. Okay, And that's collective work, of course, by my co-author and I, by uh, a a large team of folks who have supported us, uh, and by the firm at large that, again, since 1995 has been advising and assessing CEOs. Um, And I'm happy to to tell you a little bit more about the research if you'd like. I may come back to that one. I am so keen to get to the core messages here that what is it? What did you find? What are the distinguishing factors? Well, so what we found is exactly what you said earlier. You alluded to a lot of mythology surrounding CEOs. So the first thing we found is that how much mythology there is, right? And so, you know, just to pick one, for example, um, Lots of us may think that, well, gosh, to get to the very top, you absolutely need a flawless resume. You can't afford to have had any misstep, any mistake, any um, wrong turn in your career, let alone really big mistakes. Well, we were shocked to find out that actually over 45% of CEO candidates not only had mistakes, which every one of them has, so we've analyzed um, over 18,000 leaders and over 2,000 CEOs, so mistakes they've all had, um, but over 45% of them had really big blow-ups, and some of those blow-up stories are in the book, right? And nevertheless, they went on, 78% of them went on to, to uh, become successful CEOs. So when we looked at that, so, so the mythology in this case is that, well, gosh, you better play it safe if you want to get to the top. What we found is actually um, that, that's really not the case, and, and uh, we learned that even some really meaningful, big, costly mistakes don't need to be deterred on the way to the top, and it was a lot more, for those who succeeded, it was a lot more about how they dealt with the setbacks and failures as opposed to presence or absence of them uh, to begin yeah. with. 
Another myth that's very common is we always imagine CEOs, or many of us imagine CEOs as these larger-than-life personalities, right? And actually, in our research with the University of Chicago, we found that it's true, that being likable really helps you get the job. But actually, when you look at performance in the role... In introverted CEOs were not any less likely to be successful. And so what we learned bit by bit as we uncovered different aspects of this research is that there's a much wider range of backgrounds, personalities, and career track records that can lead to becoming a really successful senior executive. And so a lot of the things that uh, conventional wisdom tells us you need, whether it's Ivy League pedigree or um, inhuman charisma uh, or a perfect track record, actually, when you hold it up to the light of data and facts, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. So that was step one. That uh-huh. resonates completely with my experience of CEOs. I know that there's a lot of mythology that you have to be an extrovert and huge charisma and comfort speaking in public. I have to tell you, I know a ton of CEOs who are very introverted. They don't love speaking in public, but they learn how to do it and they become really, really good at it. But it's not intuitively natural. I sometimes think that introversion helps you as a CEO because there's so many times when you have to keep your own counsel. You can't Mm -hmm. actually say to everyone Mm -hmm. what you're thinking, and that's hard for extroverts. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, something that you said I think is really important as we talk about what we've learned, too, is often when you look at somebody who is quote-unquote, has arrived, right? Somebody who is already in the spotlight, already in the position of power, and seemingly so successful. It's easy to assume that the traits that got them there and the traits that allow their success are just kind of a God's-given gift, right? What we've learned time and again is anywhere we looked is that, first of all, the only perfect CEOs are those that we don't know up close and personal, and that the moment we do, we find these mistakes. But also we learned that what often looks like inspired charisma or what often looks like just natural, this natural sense of direction actually is a deliberate set of habits that they've cultivated and they've exercised very, very in a disciplined way over the course of their careers. And so that's really exciting to the rest of us, right, who may not feel like we're naturally endowed in one area or another because um, what we got excited about is that there's a lot you can learn and improve. And again, whether you're going to be CEO or um, in whatever role and career path you choose, those are the, the four behaviors we've uncovered um, will really lead to a greater success. Okay, so let me ask you about this thing called ambition. You know, do you need to start out wanting to be CEO to ultimately make it to CEO and kind of have this relentless pursuit of the path to the top? Ah, well, and I'm dying to hear what you think, but (laughs) I'm so glad you asked me the question, Wanda, because, um, you know, we all probably have um, people that we've come across in our path, right, you know, those quote-unquote most likely to succeed, right, in their high school yearbook or, you know, that kid that in a meeting in college would always be the first one to the board. And there there are often people we cross paths with that just look destined for success, and so it's a really good question to ask. Well, here's what we learned in the data. Shockingly, when we interviewed successful CEOs, only 30% of them actually set their sights on the top job early in their careers. So 70%, vast majority, 70%, didn't really think about becoming a CEO, certainly not in high school, certainly not in college, and frankly, most of them not until they got to a pretty senior level where the CEO role was within um, an earshot for them. Maybe they were reporting to the CEO. Maybe they were doing a special project for the board. And it became much more kind of a 
it started to feel much more within reach. And so even in that regard, you know, there are more CEOs who are like us than, than those who just wake up one morning at the age of five and say, you know, I'm going to go just to the right preschool and the right college, and then, you know, I'm going to be at the top. <laughs> That should be encouraging advice for those of us that are parents worried about Absolutely. what we get, get our kids to. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that. Um, and the reason I'm telling you I'm not surprised is back in the 80s when I was actually working with MBA students, we used to do a segment on values. And one of the values was I want to be a CEO. And you would think that people attending a prestigious MBA school, you know, would that would be the number one criteria. They put their hand up instantly. That's what I want. You're absolutely right. And I was shocked at how many of them in an MBA program said, what I want to do is be a CEO. Now, I don't think that's because we just recruited the, you know, the dregs of the MBA program. I think because people didn't actually start out with that as their primary driver. It's yeah. just too far away. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and then again, when we looked at performance, there's absolutely no correlation between how effective you are in the role and, you know, how early on you realize that that would be your career ambition. And, and frankly, sometimes, and I'm sure you've seen this in your own practice, Sometimes the career ambition for kind of that's really primarily focused on your own career advancement can really backfire and make it harder to get into the role because it's pretty hard to get to become a CEO if others don't want to follow you. And people really want to follow someone whose primary goal in life is just, you know, their own career advancement. No joke about that one. It only works through a crisis. All right, so now let me ask about another one that I think there's a lot of mythology on, and that's education. Um, I talk to tons of people who tend to believe that you have to have studied the field that you're working in and that you need advanced degrees. So, for example, Mm -hmm. I see people who never went to university who've done phenomenally well in their careers, and they always feel guilty about it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So um, we actually looked at the data. So because our data set is so broad, right, we've looked at 18,000 leaders across every industry segment. It gave us a very wide angle on CEOs of different kinds of companies, well beyond the Fortune 500. And so when you look at um, a more representative data set, what we found was actually really surprising. So we found that uh, about 7, 7%, just 7%, had undergraduate Ivy League degree, and 8% didn't even go to college, didn't complete college, or maybe took unusually long to graduate. And so, and, and both sets of individuals went on to become uh, to become CEOs, and, and uh, their success wasn't related to their uh, pedigree, ultimately. Um, and so, while certainly college education and a pedigree can be a really helpful boost, um, it was in our data set, it was not uh, a mandatory requirement, if you will. There are those who right. succeeded without it. Right. And so what uh, did um, matter is the four behaviors um, that right. we uncovered. Okay. So I'd be happy right. to share about that. So let's talk about the four behaviors then. And yeah, so, so we learned... we'll just get them listed and then we'll take a break and come back for some details. But okay, what are the four? Yeah, so we learned charisma doesn't matter as much. We learned pedigree maybe doesn't matter as much. So what does matter? So what we found out is across company sizes, what mattered was the four behaviors. So we worked with statisticians and data miners and uh, economics professors at the University of Chicago at SAS Institute, and out came, popped out four behaviors that stood out for their statistical significant relationship with success and outcome, um, successful outcomes in the CEO role. And just to make it simple to remember, because four is a, <laughs> is a lot of a lot of behaviors to remember. Think of the word dare. 
D-A-R-E. That might be an easy way for your audience to remember. So um, think of it as, you know, maybe dare to be a great, uh, dare to succeed. So D stands for decisiveness. A stands for adapting proactively. R stands for relentless reliability. And E stands for engaging for impact. So how you engage with others. So D A-R-E were the four behaviors, decisiveness, adaptability, relentless reliability, and engaging for impact. Okay, so just to review this, just to make sure everybody is clear with us, charisma isn't what leads to success. Education or pedigree isn't what leads to success. The desire to be at the top isn't what leads to success. And a perfect track record is not what leads to success. Only four distinct behaviors pop out of what is a very big data set as consistently leading to success for the CEOs that are in this data set. So that's decisiveness, adapting, relentless reliability, and engaging for impact. I love it. Okay? So, Alina, let's take a break at this moment. And then when we come back, I want to dig into what each of those four means and kind of explain them a little bit. Because I have a feeling decisiveness isn't just make up your mind for everything that comes in at every moment in time without thinking about it. It's a very specific version of each of these four. So we'll be right back. With me today is Alina Botella. And the book we've been talking about is The CEO Next Door, Four Behaviors That Transform Ordinary People into World-Class Leaders. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are more interested in learning about the business of IT, tune into This Week in IT with hosts Lang Maith and Andre Forte. Your hosts collectively have over 30 years of professional IT experience. Each week, their program showcases industry news and special guests taking a deeper look at new technologies, business contracting, security, new product demos, and business startups. Listen live for This Week in IT every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. 
Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Alina Botella. She's founder and co-leader of the CEO Genome Project, which is an extensive research and client-based practice that um, looks at the distinguishing factors for people who have become CEOs. And as Alina was saying, this is a 20-year track record of stuff that GH Smart has accumulated, and they have done an extensive analysis with all the right statistical methods to determine what distinguishes people who succeed. Now, while we're talking about CEOs, this is not relevant for you if you're only wanting to be a CEO. Alina will say it's relevant for anybody looking to be a world-class leader because that's what this is ultimately about. We were just saying that there are four behaviors, and if I repeat, it is not that there are no mistakes. It is not that you have a larger-in-life personality and enormous charisma. It's not that you uh, went to the Ivy League schools or have an amazing pedigree, and it's not that you've always wanted to be CEO and you've been relentlessly pursuing that one since early days in your life. None of those distinguish CEOs. What distinguishes people who are successful at that level are decisiveness, adapting, relentless reviability, and engagement for impact. Okay, so Alina, I have to know more details about these. Tell me about what it is about decisiveness that distinguishes a CEO's success. Absolutely. Well, so we were surprised every step of the way in this research. Um, Decisiveness. So what we expected, and frankly what I think conventional wisdom would expect from a CEO is that um, you know, these are the masters of the universe that set the vision and strategy for the business, and so they must be master deciders, as in they're more likely to be right. They're, um, they have a better knack for making higher quality decisions, and so we expected that they will stand out for the quality of their decision making. What we learned is that certainly quality needs to be there, because otherwise you'll kind of get washed out of the pool well before you get to the CEO role. But when you look at those who become successful CEOs, in addition to the quality of their decision-making, what really makes them stand out, frankly, at every stage in their career often, right, not just when they get to the C-suite, but from very, very early years, is the fact that they're willing to make a decision. So it's the decisiveness itself, as opposed to precision, so to speak, of their decision-making, that really uh, makes them stand apart. Uh, And sometimes you can see that even in their personal domains. You can certainly see that in their professional domains, that these are the individuals that are willing and able and actually desire to make a decision to take ownership and to move on, uh, as opposed to kind of falling into analysis paralysis. That's very interesting. A couple weeks ago, we interviewed somebody on the radio show who says that one of the biggest abuses of power is not using power for personal gain. It's the abandonment of power Mm, mm. based on their research. And this is the same thing. You know, you have power of information. Do you use that information? Can you make decisions or do you avoid decisions? It's the same thing you're talking here. So this willingness to make the decision particularly when you're not and not holding out for precision, for waiting for every last detail. Exactly, exactly. And the lead into that chapter is a quote from Michael Jordan who talks about how I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. Uh, I've failed over and over again, and that is why I succeeded. And that's very much whether it's in the sports arena or in a personal arena, when you look at those who become successful in this dimension of decisiveness, it's those who are not afraid to make a mistake and, uh, and kind of stand up and be counted. Okay. And I love I love your point around the void of power as being the the worst abuse of power. 
It's incredible. All right, so that's decisiveness. What is this about adapting? So adapting is very interesting. So in the boardroom, when we have conversations about CEOs and what it takes to be a successful CEO, the need to adapt and the need to chart the course for the business amidst uncertainty is the single most common concern uh, and topic of dialogue for board members. Because, and in, in, I don't need to tell you that, given your, that your show is called Out of the Comfort Zone, yeah. right? <laughs> and whether we talk about individual career paths or we talk about the world at large, Everyone, an easy topic to agree on is that there's just a great degree of change and uncertainty. And so uh, CEOs are the adapters-in-chief, if you will, for their enterprise, both because everyone who's ever become a CEO will say that nothing can fully prepare you for that role, and so you need to be able to adapt and you need to be able to embrace that discomfort, right, step out of your comfort zone, and also because they're the, they're the beacon of the business, right? And so unless the CEO can adapt, adapt their thinking, adapt their behavior, their enterprise at large cannot adapt. Right, um, and then here again, we were we were a little surprised because if I ask you, well, gee, what does strong, you know, adapting look like, or what do you think is the defining behavior of those CEOs who are really strong at adapting proactively? You know, we often tend to think, well, gosh, again, maybe they have a better crystal ball. Maybe there are people where, you know, in, in 1998, nobody knew how e-commerce. Uh, uh, landscape would shape, but somehow they must have known they were the right answer. Well, what we find actually is CEOs who stand out for being really effective at adapting aren't necessarily the ones who know better or who know earlier. They're actually the ones who are willing and have the courage to let go of the past, who proactively are willing to let go of be personal behaviors, of business opportunities, uh, of strategies that up until now actually worked really well but will no longer work in the future. And when you look at real failures of adapting, right, look at Barnes & Noble. It's sad. I live in Washington, D.C. It's ironic that so Barnes & Noble shut down one of the last stores around here, but Amazon is popping up with a physical store in Georgetown. And so if you if you look at failures to adapt, it's rarely because the path was unknown. It's typically because the old habits were really, really hard to change, old habits, old business models. And so if you think about yourself being a master adapter, the first question to ask yourself is, what are the behaviors, habits, skills, assumptions, mindsets that I need going forward? And what might be some of my past habits that are holding me back? And just pick one and start working it. And uh, you'd be amazed how well you can build out the muscle. I will also tell you, actually, so the four behaviors, um, we had a lot of um, questions coming our way about, well, gee, how do I know where I stack up? And so we actually designed a self-assessment that anybody can take on ceonextdoorbook.com. Uh, and so we had 11,000 people or over that number by now take the self-assessment. And Wanda, which, uh, what do you think were the two, was the one behavior that people habitually underestimate their strength at, where we tend to be better than we think we are? Um, adapting. Adapting. Changing We're mindset. We're all terrified, yeah. right, because it's uncomfortable, because it's so cozy and comforting to do what we've always done. And yet, you know, the whole history of human evolution, right, like we would not be here as a species if ability to adapt weren't part of our, um, you know, muscle memory, if you will. And so it's time and again, it's really interesting because I see 
leaders faced with real challenges and really struggling and not willing to make a change until there is a crisis, until there's no other option, no other choice. And that's why what we found with the, with the most successful CEOs, the master adapters, so to speak, they do it proactively. They don't wait for that, you know, that proverbial pot to boil, right, as a frog is boiling with the water in it. They will jump out of that water while it's still lukewarm because they understand where it's headed. So the, the first thing to look in the mirror as anyone as listening to this show is just ask yourself, you know, where is it that your old habits might not serve you as well in the future? And you can start small. You can start with things that feel kind of very um, easy and, and just experiment. I have two comments on this one. One, when I'm coaching people, especially as they're going into a new role, I sort of say, what are you running away from? You know, what do you yeah. And Because that's a good clue that that's an entrenched mindset. Yep, yep. And then it isn't working. It hasn't worked. And now it's time to pay attention. And the second thing I will say, as I look in the upper echelons of organizations that I work with and I spot a leader I admire, I enjoy, I have a huge amount of respect for their leadership and style, some of whom I like personally, some of whom I don't, without fail, they're incredibly open to feedback. So they will ask anybody and everybody who might give them a hint of something that they could do better for feedback on a regular basis. How do I make this better? What else could I have said? What did you think of that meeting? What are the other opportunities? What have I missed? Just constantly, not in a way that they're walking around the organization tell, you know, tell me my mistakes, but they're just open to it. Just embrace it. And the, I think that attitude is what helps you adapt. Yeah, that's a great point. Yep. Using using feedback as just data, right, to help you adapt. Yeah. Absolutely. No, they're perfectly fine to say, eh, I ignore that one exactly. as well. Exactly. They're really, really good at that one. Okay, so we've got that they make decisions, that they're not abdicating responsibility for deciding, and they're not holding out for too long for precision. Uh, that means that they're willing to win some and lose some. They're adapting, kind of this constantly proactive looking for what is my mindset, my habit, my skill that while it served me well, isn't going to get me where I want to go in the future. Number three is this relentless reliability. What do you mean by that? So relentless reliability um, was we really struggled with it. Because when we looked at the results from the research, and again, we worked with independent data miners to make sure that the research is as robust as possible, we saw relentless reliability and we thought, hmm, well, that's strange. I mean, surely reliability is a good thing, but how could that be a differentiating factor for a CEO? It just seemed too pedestrian, right? Reliability is something we want from our spouse or reliability is something we want from, um, you know, from folks that support us. But reliability just sounds too simple. Um, to be a CEO behavior, and yet it was incredibly powerful. And not only that, so of the four behaviors, reliability was actually the one behavior that both was statistically associated with a higher chance of success in the CEO role, and it also doubled your chances of getting the job, getting the CEO job to begin with. Um, And (laughs) so what was really shocking is, again, it's a behavior that clearly is very powerful that we thought was sounding kind of too simple. But then again, when we looked at the analysis of the uh, individuals who took that self-assessment online, reliability was the lowest scoring behavior. kidding me. And so while we all think we're not as good at adapting as we are, we all assume that reliability is simpler than it is. Um, And it's one of those behaviors that is 
perhaps simple in concept, but really not easy to execute and incredibly valuable. And so if somebody who, you know, reads the book, um, you'll have lots of practical suggestions on how you can improve your game at any of these four behaviors. But if you're not sure where to start and you don't want to take the self-assessment, reliability might be the first place to look. I like that one. Um, someone, again, that I interviewed a couple of weeks ago said this notion of, of uh, reliability should mean I'm going to tell you if I think I might not be able to get it done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's that I'm not 100% certain I can, so I might not. Mm-hmm. And that honesty to say, I'm not sure this is going to work. You know, I think that's amazing. So this is the same concept in slightly different ways, relentless reliability. And I do think we've gotten slack on this one in organizational life because everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm working on it. And you're not actually working on it. Yeah, we found relentless reliability is a combination of kind of four things. Um, mm-hmm. One is the mindset, right? Um, you want to be counted on. Back like, similar to what we talked about in decisiveness, where you want to move the ball forward. So in this case, when there's a situation of ambiguity, when there's need for leadership, you're not willing to, to take ownership. You're actually eager to take ownership. And there's some stories in the book you'll see how amazingly that can show up really early in life. So the mindset of reliability is really the cornerstone because without that, it's pretty hard to build any of their habits. Second, highly reliable leaders are really good at something that you just alluded to, Wanda, which is they're really thoughtful about setting expectations up front, right? And you will always, with a relentlessly reliable leader or relentlessly reliable colleague of any tenure, You'll always know what you can expect. You'll know the difference between I will deliver it by Wednesday and then you know you can sleep well knowing that it's going to be in your inbox or, you know, I'm going to give it the best shot. Here are some of the caveats around what might get in the way, so I might get it done, um, but let's revisit it on Friday if we haven't made enough progress. And so this really thoughtful um, and crisp expectation setting is really critical. Um, And then the other two pieces around reliability is putting the right people in the right roles so that not only you are reliable, but the whole organization is reliable. And then there's a whole part of the chapter where we talk about habits of reliable organizations. Um, So I'll I'll let your readers kind of... audience, um, take a look at that if, if they're interested, but um, with, with some additional tactics that one can look at to make sure that, again, not only you're reliable, but those around you um, are reliable. All right, fabulous. So anybody who wants more on that one, again, the book is The CEO Next Door, and the self-assessment that we've been talking about is CEONextDoorBook.com, and there's a self-assessment there if you want to know how you stack up on these four behaviors. Okay, Alina, before we finish this segment, let's talk about the fourth one, Engage for Impact. Engage for Impact. So that goes right back to your point about charisma, right? So it's pretty hard to be a leader without followers. And in this day and age where you're just one bad tweet away from some, you know, major embarrassment, right? Uh, it feels like, you know, reputations are very much subject to kind of Yelp, Yelp reviews, right? Where mm-hmm. negative ones are, uh, spread like wildfire and positive ones take a lot of work to build. Um, you know, you'd expect that the CEOs have to be masters at being likable. Uh, but what we found is really interesting. We called it in the book uh, the niceness curve, if you will. Um, okay. And Professor Nat Carney at the University of Cambridge has done a lot of research around that um, that you'll see mentioned in the book as well. And so what we learn is actually quite simply that um, if you're too nice or if you're nice enough, so if you're at the outlier ends of the, of the curve, 
um, you're going to be really challenged in the role. So if you're highly likable, your chances of getting the job are better. Because, again, remember, we all want to hire people who are likable. But actually, ultimately, you may not succeed in the role. And then needless to say, if you leave scorched earth behind you, um, you're going to struggle. And so what we learned is that CEOs who are masters at engaging their ultimate purpose is not to be liked, so they don't engage for affinity, right? It's not about them. They engage to move the ball forward. They engage to do what's right for the business, and so that's why we called it engaging for impact because their ultimate purpose is moving the business forward in the right way, and the only way they know they, uh, you, to do that is to engage the stakeholders. Um, and so we have a lot of, again, a lot of tactics in the book around, well, how do you do that? And one of the CEOs we worked with com- compared this to being an orchestra conductor, right, where mm-hmm. your back is to the audience. So it's not about you being liked and you being the hero. It's about kind of putting together the, most, the best performance possible so that uh, you fulfill the vision of the business. Okay. Certainly I see that. Um in leaders as they're working their way up to the top and people who have this deep or two higher positions I'd say not all the way at the top people have this deep need to be liked have a really hard time calling the shots they need to call they wait too long so it's going to hit the decisiveness factor Um, they struggle with it they you know just they have a hard, hard time Uh, and equally if they don't care about it they're in deep trouble so that certainly echoes my Uh, reviews as well but it is an odd one because if you're not particularly well liked we don't consider you for the roles so what is on a well liked and then not get too worried about being loved or how do we strike the balance between (laughs) those two yeah that's a great it's a great push Wanda well and that's why we really peeled the onion behind it's not about what you do it's what ultimately your objective is and, and people can smell that a mile away. And, and the leaders who are effective at engaging for impact, they build followership for the sake of performance, right? They build followership for the sake of the win for the team. Because being liked for an individual leader is really a win for them. It's not the win for the team. And so I think that, you know, that, that was really at the core of what it means to engage for impact is that what is the purpose behind um, your kind of engagement with the, with the stakeholders? And it's not about okay. being liked. It's about moving the, the, the business forward in the right direction. Okay. You also so alluded a- to something that these behaviors are interconnected, and if it's useful, we can briefly touch on that. It sounds like you want to wrap up for this segment. <laughs> I do shortly, but I was going to make this comment that it sounds like whatever it is your personality profile is, how important affinity is to you, how much likability is, how charismatic you are, how all of those how important they are, so long as you get your focus behind the purpose of your trying to achieve is about getting people engaged in order to drive performance or increase performance or to win for the team, that that becomes the bellwether that lets you manage some of these other challenging components. Exactly. Okay, interdependence. I just saw that there was an interdependence between um, with decision-making and the engage for impact. Do you have others that are worth noting? Well, the, the one thing I would note is that we've looked at over 2,000 CEOs. None of them is perfect at every, at, on every one of these dimensions. So um, what we see with CEOs is typically they're kind of at minimum bar across four, and they typically spike on, on one at least or a couple of these behaviors. And so when you're thinking about, and again, whether it's a CEO opportunity or if you're just thinking about your next promotion or if you're thinking about you're in the role and how do I really excel, I think two questions to ask yourself is one, well, 
what's most important in this role? So if I'm a head of R&D, well, decisiveness is really important, and so is adaptability, right? Maybe engaging for impact is also important, but again, that's really not going to be the make or break. And so the first question to ask yourself, whether you're in a leadership role in your church or in your neighborhood association or at work, is across these four behaviors in the given role that I have, what's really, what are the one and or two at most, most critical? And then have, take an honest look in the mirror and ask yourself, well, how does that map to what where my strengths are? Because certainly you can develop. And we've seen individuals using some of the techniques I would describe in the book develop as early as early career to all the way through, you know, all of my coaching and advisory work is with CEOs, and I see them struggle with some of these behaviors to this day, and I see them developing there. So the good news is it's never too early, never too late. However, if it ideally your strengths match to the number one or number one and two most important areas um, among those four behaviors. So that would be kind of a piece of advice of thinking about. Certainly, you're not going to be perfect with every one of them, but when you think about which ones to prioritize, just ask yourself what's most important here. That's right. I can imagine that's true, too, as you're thinking about looking forward to your next role and how do you put your best foot forward and thinking about the one or two critical aspects for that new role and how can you improve and talk about it and help people see your capabilities and then that I can imagine that makes you more likely candidate for that next role. Exactly. All right. With me today is Alina Botella. Alina is with the leadership advisory firm GH Smart. She's the founder and co-leader of the CEO Genome Project. The book we have been talking about is The CEO Next Door, Four Behaviors That Transform Ordinary People into World-Class Leaders. The four behaviors are decisiveness, relentless reliability, adapting, and engage for impact. And there's a lot more to say about each one of them. I'll also say, if you would like to assess yourself on how well you're doing on those four, you can go to ceonextdoorbook.com and there's a self-test for you. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the three things that are really critical for catapulting somebody's career forward. And we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., Helping organizations get it and keep it. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, then be sure to tune in to Ask the Coach with host Oliver Baisner. So your team and organization need to work more effectively, and it's taking its toll on you as a leader. Is your family and work-life balance out of whack? Now, get the answers you need from a panel of experts. No matter the challenge, you'll find the answers here. Ask the Coach airs live every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? 
Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Alina Botella. She's the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, The CEO Next Door, and she's a partner at the leadership advisory firm GH Smart, among many other things. We have been talking about the four behaviors that transform ordinary people into world-class leaders. Now, Alina and colleagues have looked at this in terms of the CEOs in their database, of which there are 20,000. More importantly, though, these behaviors are what helps people advance their careers and become world-class leaders, regardless where it is that you sit within the organization, so not just targeted for the C-suite only. So the four behaviors to remind everybody are decisiveness, adapting, relentless reliability, and engage for impact. Now, each of those words sound simple, but underneath there's a lot more for each one of them that is uh, important. And you can, if you check out the book, you can also go to the website and do a self-assessment, and that's ceonextdoorbook.com. And there are places to start and tips and tactics, and all of these are developable. Alina, what I want to talk to you about next, though, is you found that there are three key, catapult, key catapults that sort of propel careers forward. What are they, and what's this about? Absolutely. Well, so anticipating that the book will be read by some ambitious folks, right, who may or may not know they want to get to the top, um, being, top being to find a CEO role, but they know they want to get there quickly and they want to really excel and exceed. And so then we asked ourselves the question in our research, um, what really separates those who not only get to the top, but get there faster than average? So on average, we found it took about 24 years for an individual from their first job to the CEO suite. Um, and, you know, we thought, well, I wonder what might, what those who've gotten there faster, we're wondering what might unite those. Are there any common characteristics or com- common career choices? And uh, we kind of anticipated that some of the things would be predictable, right? So MBA, right? Obviously, having an elite MBA must be a good catapult. Um, if you happen to work at an academic company, must be a good catapult. Well, as always, what we wanted to do is actually look at facts and data as opposed to hypothesis. So when we dug into the data, what we found was really interesting. So in fact, when we looked at the those who got to the top faster, about a quarter of them did have an elite MBA. So nothing new there. It helps if you have access to the elite MBA program. So that's about a quarter of them. Here's what shocked us. Compared to about a quarter with elite MBAs, 97%, so virtually every one of those folks who got to the top faster, 97%, undertook at least one of these three catapults. And about a half of them actually undertook at least two. 
And so we uncovered these three types of career choices that these individuals were making that really got them to the top faster. And we called them the career catapults because the catapults sort of kind of vault you over the wall fast and, you know, with, with strong momentum. Um, and so I'd be happy to share what those catapults are. <laughs> Great. I, I'm, I'm all ears. So 97% had one of the three, 50% had two or more. All right. And an elite MBA is only accounts for a quarter of the population. Perfect. So what are these three key factors? So we found three key tactics. The first one that over 60% of these individuals did in their career, so it was the most common of these three catapults, we called it go small to go big. So what that looks like is somebody who was on a fast track to the top all of a sudden takes a role that looks smaller, that maybe looks less prestigious, that maybe going from uh, a really prestigious marquee company to maybe a smaller division, or maybe even going from um, overseeing lots of people to taking on a new opportunity to build something from ground up. So 60% of these individuals undertook something that was kind of looked like a small um, small step or a step to doing something smaller compared to the track they were on. But then ultimately, it actually helped propel them to the top. So go small to go big is the first one. The second one is... Um, Inheriting a big mess. So about a third of these individuals, we call them sprinters, who got to the top faster, uh, walked into a big mess. And then finally, another third took what we call a big leap. So a big leap feels like you have a pit in your stomach because you got the job or you got an opportunity um, for a large project, but you're really fearful that you got overpromoted or everyone around you made a mistake because it's, you know, nothing you've done up until then really quite prepares you for the full scope of what you're about to undertake. And so it's go small to go big, it's stepping into a big mess, and it's taking on a big leap. What's interesting about those three is that actually in the, it's easy to look in hindsight and say, well, gosh, you know, look at this successful individual, and now we can draw kind of the lines connecting the past career choices to the future success. What's interesting about these three career catapults is that at the time, to conventional kind of decision maker or to, to many of us, they didn't necessarily look like a fast path to the top. They may, have, they may have looked like quite a considerable career risk. And so what we learned that was really interesting is that individuals who advanced faster, they took the right types of career risks um, and didn't shy away from them. And sometimes they were succeeded and sometimes they didn't, but ultimately uh, it allowed them to get to the top faster. And does it matter if they succeeded in each of these three or can one of these three be places where they had a major mistake? Well, so some of them would undertake these um, multiple times in their career, and then some of them were successful, some of them were less successful. Um, but in, even in cases when they've made mistakes in, uh, in, in some of these catapults, the catapults still help them both build the skill set and also get the, rec- the visibility uh, that longer-term helped them get to the top. Mm-hmm. I can see that one. So success is better than failure, but failure was not detrimental. Yeah, failure doesn't kill you on this one either. Do you remember if you go back to, you know, eons back in the 1980s when the Center for Creative Leadership was studying uh, what made people successful? And one, they talked about various different career moves that were critical for um, preparing yourself for the C-suite role or for upper echelon roles. And one of those was doing a startup. 
Mm. And that's that sense of going small to go big. Mm -hmm. And another one was a move in and out of headquarters and back to the business. And that could either be any of these, but you're more likely to pick up a big mess or have a big leap if you're doing that back and forth, in and out. And um, another one was scale, taking something to scale, that if you've never gone to scale, it makes you less effective in the higher uh, upper levels of management. So it's interesting. I like your three, though, because it's three with a specific purpose. The go small to go big. Take something that looks like a sideline and then build it from the ground up or do something unique with it. Inherit a mess. Show me you can fix it. And then three is really push yourself out of that comfort zone where there is that pit in the stomach because that's where growth is going to come from as well as visibility and recognition. Exactly. And, you know, interestingly, so we, in the previous two segments, we talked about these four behaviors. When we asked ourselves across these three catapults, right, the go, the go small to go big, the big mess, and the big leap, why is it that they propel one to the top? Well, what we realized is that, you know, essentially individuals that progress rapidly, it's a, it's a combination of two factors. It's about delivering the results that count, and it's about be, being known for those results. And then the third factor is about building those behaviors, those four behaviors that we talked about as being really crucial to one's success. And so we found that the common denominator for these three um, types of career catapults is that they present really rare, very unique opportunities to both develop those four behaviors, or at least some of the four behaviors, right? You've recalled, you know, an example of a crisis, right? So if you're not decisive in a crisis, um, you're probably not going to make it through the crisis, right? Um, if you can't get followership uh, in a big leap, right, If you, you're not going to be able to scale. And so those three catapults are become really important, both proving ground and a crash course on these four CEO behaviors, one, and then they also enable you to generate the kinds of results that matter and be noticed for them. And so I, I love the link you drew to the some of the Center for Creative Leadership uh, work, and I think it's not coincidental uh, from what we've seen. Yeah, I think it's. I think you know we're getting back to some of the basics. I, it encourages me when I find that multiple different research angles are coming up with the same kind of concept. We might call it differently, but it's something very similar, and that just gives me confidence that we're on the right track. That these are the things that really, really do indeed matter. Okay, Elena, we've just got a couple of minutes before we close. I'm interested, if somebody's listening, what's your one piece of advice, particularly if I'm sitting kind of in the middle, upper middle parts of an organization, what's the one thing I should be thinking about right now? Working on the four behaviors. (laughs) No matter where you go, those are the four behaviors that will help you really, you know, give you the best chance of success. Okay. Um, and become and really grow into your full potential, right? We've spent a lot of time focused on the career trajectory, but really kind of building building your uh, leadership and your professional muscles um, to the full to the full potential. Okay, I can see this now becoming really core to center to your own personal objectives for development. So in your individual development plans, into your self-assessment, into asking for feedback from people and really focusing on what's the one I'm going to work and move forward and be known for. So again, to repeat, the four behaviors are decisiveness, not get too stuck for precision, willing to make a decision and take accountability. Two is relentless reliability with an emphasis on the word relentless. Three is adapting, proactively willing to get rid of habits, mindset, skills that have succeeded in the past but may not be needed in the future. And the last one is engage for impact. 
All right, Alina, it's been fabulous having you on the show today. Alina is co-author of a best-selling book, The CEO Next Door, Four Behaviors That Turn Ordinary People Into World-Class Leaders. She's also partner at the firm GH Smart. So, Alina, thank you for being here. Wanda, thank you. My pleasure. All right, and join us next week for another episode on how you can get yourself out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.